Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut has a long-standing housing crisis, and advocates point to local zoning as a barrier in the way of building more affordable, multifamily units in communities across our state. Coming up, we learned about how recent efforts in our state to desegregate communities through zoning reform are now informing efforts to create a national zoning atlas. Sarah Bronin, a professor at Cornell University, joins us. And we hear from Yale Law professor Robert Ellickson about his new book, America's Frozen Neighborhoods, The Abuse of Zoning. First, the town of Woodbridge, Connecticut, a suburb in New Haven, has been, New Haven County rather, has been sued over its zoning regulations. Civil rights attorneys and housing advocates allege Woodbridge zoning policies violate a state fair housing law by restricting the development of, of affordable multifamily apartments. Now, how the lawsuit is decided could have repercussions on zoning ordinances in Connecticut's 169 towns and beyond. For more, joining us first on Zoom is Camila Vallejo, Connecticut Public's housing reporter, also a core member with Report for America. Camila, welcome back to the show. Lucy, thank you so much for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Camila, you attended this press conference in August when the lawsuit I mentioned was first announced. Let's take a listen to Erin Boggs. She's director of the Open Communities Alliance and the principal of Open Communities Trust, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. To be clear, Woodbridge is not alone in engaging in exclusionary zoning. Towns across Connecticut and across the country zone to keep out certain groups. The deep levels of segregation in Connecticut today are foreseeable outcomes of decades of exclusionary zoning practices. By keeping so much of the state off limits for the development of denser housing that is less expensive to build, these practices have also generated an affordable housing crisis felt all the more acutely as we contend with COVID-era market pressures and evictions. So Camila, she said Woodbridge is not alone. So tell us more about this suit and why Woodbridge uh, is named in this particular suit challenging its zoning practices. Absolutely. Uh, So uh, a group of civil rights lawyers and housing advocates uh, claim that Woodbridge's current zoning practices are exclusionary that they don't allow for economic and racial diversity in the town because they don't allow for multifamily housing to be built in majority of the town, which tends to open the doors for affordable housing. And how we got here is that in 2020, Open Communities Trust submitted a petition to allow multifamily housing developments in all of Woodbridge, in all of its residential areas. And, you know, that that led into several public hearings, um, expert testimonies, a lot of public comment. And in the end, the commission decided not to move with the proposal, uh, but instead um, create their own zoning updates. Um, 
But Open Communities Trust and the group of civil rights lawyers say that's not enough to fix the, pop, the problem of exclusionary zoning uh, and the laws the municipality is allegedly violating. Mm. Tell us more about the laws, because we know that this is a, a conversation that's happened in the last two years, especially on you know what towns are able uh, to enforce in terms of what is built in their communities and how much say the, the state has. Uh, there's, of course, the debate about that. So I'm wondering if you can tell us more about the, the laws that Woodbridge is potentially violating here. Absolutely. So the lawsuit says that Woodbridge is violating uh, three different things. Number one is the Zoning Enabling Act, which gives municipalities the authority to set zoning controls in their communities. And that could be the size of a development, how many buildings should be built on a lot, the lot size, and more. And the act says, among other things, that the municipality should use these requirements to promote health and safety, stop overcrowding, and of course, allow housing opportunity for low and moderate income households and respond to the region's need for multifamily housing. Um, so the, the lawsuit says that Woodbridge is violating that by not um, making an effort to create more housing for low-income residents. Um, it's also saying that it's violating the Connecticut Fair Housing Act, uh, which says that there should be no discrimination when it comes to housing for, for several protected groups. Um, and the plaintiffs say that zoning in Woodbridge disproportionately impacts Black and Latino households that tend to need more affordable housing, like the one multifamily developments can open the doors to. And then lastly, it says um, that it's violating due process, equal protection, and the anti-segregation portions of the Connecticut Constitution. Now, we reached out to Woodbridge for comment and did not hear back uh, for this morning's show. But what? how has the town responded, Camila? So as far as I know, um, the town hasn't uh, necessarily responded to the lawsuit. You're hearing Camila Vallejo here where we live, Connecticut Public's housing reporter, as we learn more about a suit filed against the town of Woodbridge over its zoning laws and what type of development uh, housing they permit it within the town. Uh, joining us now for more perspective is Sean Gio, who is P- policy director for the Partnership for Strong Communities. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. Uh, Camila did a great job uh, talking about the the different uh, laws on the books uh, when it relates to uh, what types of housing um, should be uh, permitted in particular communities. A lot of this circle, uh, I think, centers around uh, something called 830G. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this suit and how this particular state law plays a part. Sure. Um, I would say, so for for those, uh, the Section 830G is the statutory reference for the um, Connecticut's Affordable Housing Appeals Act, which was enacted back in 1990 by the legislature during um, an earlier housing crisis of affordability in the state. And um, it's it's related to this suit in as much as uh, 830G applies to towns that um, do not have uh, at least... 10% of their housing is affordable. So it's related to uh, the suit in Woodbridge only in the sense that um, would that Woodbridge does not have a lot of affordable housing uh, and uh, it's resisted the affordable housing growth over the years. Just using 830G as a reference back in 1993, 1993 uh, when uh, the town had four affordable housing units. Now in 2021, Nearly 30 years later, the town has grown to 41 units, so a net gain of 37. 
Uh, when we hear about 830G recently uh, with this election year, we're hearing a gubernatorial candidate, uh, Bob Stefanowski, calling for its repeal. Some say that it's not working. Uh, I'm wondering if you can respond to that. Sure. Uh, I think um, first 830G came out of a blue ribbon commission, bipartisan commission back in the late 80s. And uh, the um, there were 26 recommendations, I believe. One of those turned into what we now call 830G. A few of the other recommendations were passed, but by and large, they were not. So 830G, this, uh, which is uh, a developer's ability to appeal certain uh, zoning decisions and have the burden of proof on the town, 830G was, was always conceived as one tool uh, and not as, uh, as it's often erroneously called a, a policy. Uh, it, it's in fact just an ability to do for the developer to have uh, do, uh, ability to appeal certain decisions. Uh, and I think it's become more controversial over the years, particularly this year, because as a reflection of the growing uh, housing crisis, rents and home values have skyrocketed, uh, which changes the equation, the financial equation for some developers uh, that so that uh, becomes more attractive to build. Uh, so in places, say, for instance, in lower Fairfield County, where they'd really like to expand housing, people want to uh, move there. Uh, developers find uh, A30G, uh, they can make those developments work financially. So we have seen more uh, developments through A30G. But, you know, the real, uh, if you really think the, the A30G is an interesting thing in that it, it, it it's an expression of the town's resistance. And uh, if if towns, and I mentioned the Woodbridge numbers, had uh, had proactively worked to expand affordable housing in their communities, then A30Gs would uh, would not be an option for developers. When you mentioned expand affordable housing uh, in a particular town, how much of their housing stock uh, would need to be affordable per se, uh, where mm-hmm. uh, they would then have uh, you know I guess more they wouldn't have to follow this 830G. Um, a law. Sure. Communities that have 10% of their um, housing stock uh, designated as affordable based on the statute's definition are exempt from the statute. There's uh, also uh, moratorium provisions that were added in 2000, where, uh, which essentially give uh, temporary exemptions, four-year exemption from the statute when a town uh, achieves a certain amount of incremental growth it's about two percent of their housing stock but one one thing i think we often folks there's different kinds of affordable housing and the act reflects that it, it recognizes it counts housing that gets government uh, subsidy so uh, public housing but also rental vouchers uh, for folks count and also single family mortgages that are underwritten by uh, the connecticut housing finance authority are also counted uh, and finally, deed restricted homes. What folks uh, that which uh, which encompasses 830G developments along with others. Mm-hmm. Now, Sean, this particular lawsuit focuses on Woodbridge, but depending on uh, how it's decided, could have uh, repercussions on how communities uh, zone for particular housing. So, um, looking statewide, how is the state doing in terms of uh, the variety of housing that can um, serve the needs of the residents here? Uh, well, I I think um, I looked back uh, recently, and the concentrate essentially 
affordable housing remains very concentrated in a few of our communities, as it was when the Act 830G, again, looking back at that, it was passed, uh, about 77 or 78% of all of the affordable homes in Connecticut through designated affordable homes in Connecticut are in the 31 municipalities that are exempt from 830G. Uh, so uh, this the towns have had 30 plus years now since 1990 to work on this. And unfortunately, many of them have not seen much prog progress. I mentioned Woodbridge. Their change over that time period was about one percentage, one percent, uh, one percentage point. And that's the case for many, many communities in the state. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, as we talk about uh, the housing crisis in our state. I'm curious uh, how your community is responding uh, to uh, the development of housing that serves all of its residents, and also thinking about uh, ways uh, to include more uh, people who are looking to be in particular communities uh, for all the reasons uh, that we, we, we seek out communities uh, for um, its safety, uh, for uh, the quality of schools, uh, again, for the services that towns provide. Again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sean, the Connecticut Mirror's Tom Condon recently reported that state housing data show an estimated 8,500 affordable housing units, mostly rental apartments, and then another 18,000 market rate units in set-aside developments have been created thanks to 830G. That's since 1990. And Condon profiled one such complex in Griswold Hills in Newington. And so when we think about the housing crisis uh, that's persisting, you know, what more can uh, state lawmakers, municipal leaders do from the perspective of the Partnership for Strong Communities? Sure. Uh, and I think the first thing they can do, folks can do, is try to see outside or beyond 830G and really look to uh, what the affordable housing crisis means for their residents and residents of the state. And the, the state has invested uh, over the last 10 years or so uh, more than a billion dollars in affordable housing development. Uh, construction on its own um, and uh, many millions of dollars for vouchers. And what local leaders can uh, can do is really advocate to their legislators to increase those amounts. Uh, if we really want to expand the availability of affordable homes and expand access to communities through vouchers, we need pressure on, uh, and uh, advocacy from local community, local officials to expand those investments. Camila Vallejo is still with us, Connecticut Public's housing reporter. I've mentioned affordable housing several times. Camila, could you break it down further for us when we talk about affordable housing, what that means and how much of a gap remains in our state? Absolutely. Um, so affordable housing really is, um, you know, housing that, um, you know, is for people who might make less than 80% of the area median income uh, in their particular communities. And that really could be, um, you know, anyone. I think when we talk about um, affordable housing, we always uh, tend to say, you know, it, it's housing for our, um, you know, police officers, for our teachers, but it's also housing for our, um, you know, grocery store workers, our, you know, people that just uh, keep our communities running. Um, and, you know, these different kinds of careers have different incomes and therefore affordable housing is, you know, um, an ability to house people uh, and based on the income that they earn. Um, and, you know, recently 
the uh, Department of Housing did, a, um, you know, took a look into what the gap looked like, looks like, and it's, um, you know, a gap, a gap of about 90,000 um, units for our low-income earners. Mm, 90,000. Sean, I wonder if you could respond to that number. Yeah, I, I think um, people hear that number and they think 90,000 homes, but I think uh, it's... It, we, uh, I mentioned mobile housing vouchers, folks, federal programs called Section 8 people are familiar with. So, uh, and I also mentioned earlier subsidized mortgages. You know, there's more than uh, one way to, uh, to meet that number to satisfy the need for lower income households. In, in Connecticut, it's construction, it's, but it's also uh, other tools like A30G and vouchers and uh, subsidized mortgages. Coming up, we're going to talk more about exclusionary zoning. I understand, Sean, some towns have adopted inclusionary zoning. They are developing multifamily units. I'm wondering if you can respond to that. That's progress? Uh, yes. Uh, I think certain communities um, where where there's strong demand uh, for housing, um, inclusionary zoning, which tells the developer that uh, in order to, to move forward with the, the development, they have to set aside a certain percentage of the homes as affordable. And so the, that can work, particularly in strong markets. So mostly in Connecticut, where we see inclusionary zoning ordinances in places uh, in, in Fairfield County, particularly lower Fairfield County. And they've, they've created quite a few units. Stanford, I think, is uh, probably the best example um, they and they accumulate units uh, that way, but also fees so that they can then support their own uh, local public housing authority and other nonprofit housing developers. So it is another tool and it, there have to be many tools uh, to expand housing opportunity in the state. You've been hearing Sean Gio again, Policy Director for the Partnership for Strong Communities. Also with us, Camila Vajejo, Connecticut's Public's housing reporter. Thank you both for your time on the show. Thank you, Lucy. Up next, Thank we're, you, gonna, Lucy. we're going to be learning up after a break how zoning policies have constrained housing in our state and nationwide. There are efforts to create a national zoning atlas. We talk about the need. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we learn how local zoning policies have profound consequences on the inability to have a variety of housing in communities. Yale Law Professor Robert Ellickson writes in his new book, America's Frozen Neighborhoods, that zoning freezes land uses in established neighborhoods and impacts the economy because real estate markets cannot respond to supply and demand. More from him in just a few minutes. Joining us now is Sarah Bronin, founder of Desegregate Connecticut, Desegregate CT, which has pushed for zoning reform in our state. Sarah is a professor at Cornell University and the director of the Legal Constructs Lab, where she's overseen the creation of a national zoning atlas that was informed by uh, the one that Desegregate uh, CT built for our state uh, in, in recent years. Sarah, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. So, Sarah, when we think about the data that exists around zoning codes town to town, uh, what did you find uh, through Desegregate uh, CT's work and now with this work on the National Atlas? Why it's so important to understand these policies? Well, you know, when we started um, advocating here in Connecticut through Desegregate Connecticut, people were asking us time and time again, uh, how do our communities zone? And as Sean pointed out, we've had blue ribbon commissions. We've had CHRO reports uh, going back to the year I was born, 1978, and probably before that, too. Um, that have said that there is a problem, but we really didn't haven't deployed the tools um, the analytical tools that uh, you know have developed since forty something years ago to really pinpoint the issues. And so, what we did was we looked at um, the zoning maps. We tied those maps to data about how each jurisdiction in Connecticut zones, and we found some really shocking results. We found that. Um, 91% of land in the state is zoned for single family housing, while just 2% of land in the state allows for as of right multifamily housing. As um, Sean and Camila pointed out, you know that a lot of that is concentrated in uh, urban locations, that kind of zoning. Um, and the other towns in Connecticut tend to have uh, exclusionary features. Um, one of those is just one example is the, the minimum lot size, um, which uh, in Connecticut, 80% of residential land is a one acre minimum lot size, which is enormous, absolutely enormous, especially compared to um, many other jurisdictions across the country. Um, so just as we've been trying to figure out how exactly Connecticut zones and really quantify that using geospatial techniques and tying um, a careful reads of zoning codes to this um, to these maps. Um, we're trying to do that nationally too. So we really can uh, compare and see whether our hunch that Connecticut is even more um, uh, e- exclusionary than other parts of the country uh, holds true. So when we think about the um, amount of work that takes uh, to to get that data, I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that national zoning atlas. You know, where do you begin, and and uh, tell us about the progress so far. Well, um, you you have to start somewhere, um, and so what we've tried to do is to um, s- slowly build up um, teams from across the country. 
Um, we were fortunate in that uh, there were already uh, people who were interested in zoning data and collecting much of this data. So out at UC Berkeley, uh, that's where our California Zoning Atlas team is housed. They were already collecting uh, this kind of data in the larger San Francisco uh, regions and LA, LA and Sacramento. Um, and so now we've, uh, we're working with them to expand that to the whole state. Researchers in Minnesota, same thing. Um, we've been able to get teams from Montana, Texas, New Hampshire, uh, Hawaii, neighboring states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island, um, and even at a New York zoning atlas, which is and, and Ohio. And these are pretty daunting because these have over a thousand jurisdictions each. Ohio has over 2000. Um, so states are going to go at different paces, but this is really a team effort. We've got universities um, uh, nonprofit organizations, planning entities like the Regional Plan Association, and even state agencies uh, are involved in various atlases. And, and this is also, I should say, from a wide political spectrum. So in Montana, the atlas is led by the Frontier Institute, which is libertarian leaning. We have a Texas zoning atlas, um, and we're about to put a few more online, including Tennessee. So we're seeing this interest across the country. And really, um, standardizing data collection about zoning is going to enable a, really a lot of interesting research about the impacts of zoning in different regions. Um, and yeah. And enable research. But when we think about reform, uh, really inform uh, policymakers, communities about um, how uh, this really does constrain uh, housing and impact so many. Uh, we just heard about the Woodbridge suit. Uh, litigation is one example of a step towards reform. What are some other steps, Sarah? Well, I mean, an alternative to litigation or and actually in, in many cases uh, that goes something that goes hand in hand in litigation is is legal reform. So either through state statutes, uh, the state enabling acts that every state has or through local zoning ordinances. And I really believe that as people understand how we zone, um, I think people are much more compelled to change it. And we saw that with our desegregate Connecticut effort, which is more on the falls more on the statutory and, and ordinance reform side of things. Um, the zoning atlas was used to produce a series of reports that are on the desegregate website um, that showed that uh, zoning around train stations all up and down the state are 62 uh, train and Connecticut fast track stations um, was was kind of backwards instead of zoning for uh, multifamily housing around those stations, concentrating walkable communities that people really want to live in. We've zoned for large lot single family housing around train stations. So the states and federal government's investment in this kind of transit infrastructure you know, isn't gone entirely to waste, but we could do a lot better, get a lot more out of that investment um, if we arrange the land uses around those stations to match. And so the data is helping to make a case for transit-oriented communities, which I hope will um, make it back on the session legislative ses sessions agenda now that we don't have a short session like we did last year. Um, and it's also making the case for a careful review of minimum lot size reform and minimum parking requirements. Um, all of these topics have been on the table in other states and hopefully in Connecticut um, this data will help to justify changes there, too. You're hearing Sarah Bronin here where we live, a professor at Cornell University, director of the Legal Constructs Lab, where she's overseen the creation of a national zoning atlas. And uh, we've heard about her work uh, as well with Desegregate CT. Uh, we've mentioned the Woodbridge suit. Uh, calling in is Jay from Branford, who is part of Open Communities Alliance. Uh, Jay, what did you want to share? Oh, thank you. Um, I, I am the 
board co-chair with Connie Royster, uh, Constance Baker Motley's niece of Open Communities Alliance. You heard from Aaron Boggs, our executive director, at the top of the show. Um, and I also, with Anika Singh Lamar, co-direct the housing clinic at Yale Law School. And our students, on behalf of the Open Communities Alliance, initiated the zone change application in Woodbridge over two years ago and had the public hearings you referenced. And on August 30th, together with uh, Wilmer Hale, a national law firm acting as pro bono counsel um, and some others, uh, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, brought suit in state court against Woodbridge, challenging their exclusionary zoning policies. And I appreciate the chance to explain that slightly more. Um, the theory of the case, the main claim, is, as you said, that Woodbridge has violated the Zoning Enabling Act. Under Connecticut state law, and as Bob Ellickson soon will explain, um, under most state laws, zoning is a state power. And the state delegates it to towns so that they can have authority over their own geography with respect to land use and the choices of what kind of housing and communities they want to have. But that delegation of state power is given to the towns on terms and on conditions. The towns are not given carte blanche to zone however they want to serve only their own narrow, selfish interests. In fact, state law has been changed so that the towns are required to zone on behalf of the region in which the town has lived and not just the town itself. Mm -hmm. And they're required under state law to promote affordable housing and to promote housing that serves a wide range of income spectrums. And Jay, and thank you. Thank you for that I'm clarification. Sorry. I don't want to run out of time to, to speak know, with Sarah. I, I, I and won't go much longer. Yeah. I won't go much All right, real quick, Jay. Woodbridge, Wood, excuse me, Woodbridge has not done that. Woodbridge has zoned for itself. It's built a wall around itself, keeping out affordable housing, keeping out people of color. Sarah Bronin pointed out that only 2% of the state land has most of the affordable multifamily, uh, multi-unit buildings in the state. And that 2% is highly segregated and in poor neighborhoods. And thank you, Jay, again for your comments on the show. Uh, Sarah Bronin, did you want to add to what uh, Jay clarified? No, I, th I think he added some in important context and, uh, you know, looking at Woodbridge and looking at, you know, many of the communities surrounding New Haven, surrounding Hartford, um, they, they do, uh, they, you can see clearly on our map, you can just click from one to the other and, and it, and it kind of reinforces this, um, this point about um, the, the longstanding um, zoning that, that, that really shuts out um, lots of different uh, types of options and in fact that that prevents p even people who currently live in those communities from staying in those communities as they age different kinds of housing options their children can't live uh, there because they they don't really have a diversity of housing choices so it's uh, you know there's a lot of consequences of zoning and you know <laughs> just if you looked at the benefits to people 
living in those communities currently, um, there's a strong case for, for, for rethinking all of that. So thank you. And to put a finer point on, on this, uh, again, as we're talking about uh, the housing crisis in our state, how zoning impacts uh, the uh, types of housing uh, to serve all of our residents. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Robert Ellickson. Again, his new book is America's Frozen Neighborhoods, The Abuse of Zoning. It examines local zoning policies and suggests reforms that states and the federal government might adopt to counter the negative effects of exclusionary zoning. Uh, Robert is the Walter E. Meyer Professor Emeritus of Property and Urban Law at Yale Law School. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Now, your new book draws on an article, The Zoning Straitjacket, where you looked at Silicon Valley, the greater New Haven area, as well as the greater Austin area. I'm wondering if you can talk about the zoning restrictions uh, or uh, the the freedom in some places uh, to develop housing that appeals uh, to a wide range of incomes. I chose the three uh, 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 metropolitan areas that I ended up picking uh, uh, to con- contrast uh, their various policies. Uh, in Austin, for example, in Greater Austin, it has much been it been much easier to build uh, multifamily housing than uh, in the Silicon Valley and in um, uh, 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 in Greater New Haven. Uh, New Haven is famous uh, for its exclusionary zoning. Uh, I'll I'll mention uh, some statistics from uh, uh, Woodbridge, uh, uh, Connecticut. Um, uh, Woodbridge uh, zones uh, 98% of its land for a minimum of one and a half acres, a minimum lot size, um, and and restricts uh, that land to uh, single family uh, unit development uh, and so forth, uh, and this is, uh, needless to say, greatly constrained uh, what uh, builders have been able to do. Um, I should tribute. Uh, I should pay tribute to uh, Sarah's uh, work because uh, because she and she and I are both interested in uh, finding out more about how zoning actually works. Um, and uh, her uh, Connecticut Atlas was uh, is, is an impressive document, and 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 now she's going uh, national uh, with it. Um, uh, I should explain a little bit about uh, my my finding that uh, uh, that America's neighborhoods are frozen. What I mean by that is that there's an enormous status quo bias in local zoning politics, um, where. Uh, um, uh, uh, give the example of Palo Alto, California, which is at the heart of the Silicon Valley. Um, uh, 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 basically, uh, Palo Alto uh, has frozen uh, its zones. It's been zoning for over a hundred years. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it almost never uh, changes 99% of the time. It has not changed uh, the zones that it uses uh, in single family neighborhoods. Uh, uh, unlike uh, Connecticut uh, su- suburbs, uh, New Haven suburbs, um, uh, 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 Palo Alto's uh, requirements for minimum lot sizes are fairly generous uh, in that they're often 6,000 6, 6, or 8,000 square feet, which is relatively small, uh, very different than Woodbridge, for example. Um, uh, but um, uh, 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 
they never change. Uh, uh, they never, almost never zone an existing single family neighborhood to multifamily housing. Um, uh, let me turn now to Woodbridge, uh, Connecticut. 90% uh, um, uh, of the, 98% uh, of the land in Woodbridge is zoned for a minimum lot size of, of one and a half acres. Uh, much of it, by the way, two and a half, uh, two, two acres. Um, and uh, Woodbridge started down this path uh, in the 1930s. Uh, 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 so it's the granddaddy, if you will, of, of, of exclusionary zoning in, uh, in, greater, in, in greater New Haven. Uh, some mention has been made of uh, Connecticut statute uh, 830G. Um, uh, I'm actually critical in, in my book uh, of, of that, that, that approach. Um, uh, the best way to uh, help housing consumers, I think, is uh, to use vouchers. Uh, uh, and there's, uh, uh, Sean has mentioned uh, Section 8 vouchers uh, that is a federal program. Uh, 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 and, and that's vastly better in, in most circumstances to building of projects. Uh, uh, projects lock in uh, various people. Uh, the worst was, of course, public housing, uh, uh, but uh, the low-income housing tax credit also uh, locks in people. Um, so um, uh, 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 I mentioned the greater, we mentioned the greater Austin area. And so when we think about Silicon Valley, uh, Bob, uh, where it's 10 times the median house value nationwide, um, how people are moving into uh, the Austin area. And, and why is that when it comes to, to zoning there and the availability of different uh, housing? Uh, well, uh, Austin is, is, has traditionally been, uh, whether it will continue to be, uh, it's not not clear, uh, but has continued to be much more pro-housing than, 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 than Silicon Valley, to use an example. And, and certainly uh, uh, Connecticut is, is one of the worst uh, exclusionary, uh, exclusionary zoning states. Um, uh, so at, at any rate, uh, uh, let me just say a word about uh, home rule. Uh, the advocates of uh, uh, of, of local control over zoning uh, often st state that uh, correctly, I think that uh, uh, local people have better knowledge on average than state people do, for example, uh, about uh, local conditions. Uh, and that's and that, that, that I think is true. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, the problem is that uh, with, with home rule, uh, uh, and which is a, an exalted principle in Connecticut, uh, uh, there's no incentive for people to take into account uh, the effects of, of, of their policies on uh, uh, the availability of housing uh, for regional housing consumers. So um, uh, this means that, that uh, home rule, I think, is in, in, in my book, uh, a, a forthcoming book, uh, attacks uh, uh, the home rule uh, as in, in principle. Uh, on the ground that uh, uh, there's too much of it uh, in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, uh, this is the home rule, by the way, is a legal concept, but is, uh, is, is, is most, uh, most, most jurisdictions uh, have uh, honor uh, to some extent uh, home rule. So 
so, uh, uh, so I'm anyway. My book is controversial in the sense that I am uh, I'm, I'm I'm I am attacking this sacred cow in Connecticut of of, of, of local autonomy, uh, but I think that's a, a mis been a misguided principle in the United States. Uh, you, in your book, we, we learn how zoning can strangle housing production. It restricts greater residential density. You also write, not all zoning is bad, but the bad zoning are rules that flunk benefit cost analysis. Can you explain that? Uh, well, I, I, my general approach uh, is, uh, uh, is to use uh, uh, benefit cost analysis. And that's, that, that's my, my normative uh, position and uh, assessing uh, policies. And so the thought is that uh, local, local zoning policies commonly uh, inflict more damage on outsiders, uh, uh, regional housing consumers, uh, than they benefit insiders. Um, and uh, at worst, uh, uh, zoning operates uh, to serve the interests of what I call, uh, call at times, uh, homeowner cartels, um, uh, where uh, uh, they, you know, they deliberately increase uh, the the cost of housing. Uh, to uh, uh, the cartel increases the cost of housing by restricting its over uh, over restricting its production, housing production. So uh, those are uh, uh, those are my main themes. You're hearing Robert Ellickson here, where we live. Again, author of this new book, America's Frozen Neighborhoods: The Abuse of Zoning. This book examines local zoning policies and suggests reforms to counter exclusionary zoning. We're going to hear more right after a short break, and we'll also continue talking with Sarah Bronin. Cornell University professor and director of the Legal Constructs Lab, where she's overseen the creation of a national zoning atlas, informed by the one she helped build for Connecticut. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking to two researchers about zoning reform that could help address a housing crisis in our state and across the country. With us, Sarah Bronin, a Cornell University professor. She's overseen the creation of a national zoning atlas informed by the one she built for Connecticut. Also with us, Robert Ellickson, who has the, is the author of the new book. He's a Yale Law School professor. The book is titled America's Frozen Neighborhoods, The Abuse of Zoning. Uh, Sarah, we got a a, a comment from a listener uh, who shared that uh, the coordination between zoning reform and the climate crisis, this relationship between these two movements will be one made in heaven. And she wanted to know, is there any movement to coordinate them together? Absolutely. So here in Connecticut, we were really thrilled to engage many members of the environmental community uh, through Desegregate Connecticut. We had um, on our coalition, uh, Save the Sound, uh, the Trust for Public Land, uh, Cleaner Connecticut Coalition, um, and other groups that really focus on issues of the environment. And the reason is that good housing policies that help to provide opportunities for people to live in arrangements beyond large lot single family zoning only, 
um, actually are really good for the environment. So thinking back to that comment I made about um, zoning around our train stations, the logical thing to do for climate is to put housing and mixes of uses around those stations so that people can walk and, and get from one place to another. It also helps to build transit ridership, which is essential for us to um, uh, to, to fix uh, many issues in our state. Um, and actually we're, we're proud too to have Transport Hartford um, and other uh, people-friendly Stanford and other groups to focus on these uh, topics in the Desegregate Connecticut Coalition as well. Um, I should add Clean Water Action, the Citizens Climate Lobbies, Sierra Club, Connecticut. Uh, so there's a lot of groups on our coalition that are that are interested in these issues. Um, but beyond beyond just the this, I guess you could call it the smart growth aspect of um, of, of of rethinking our zoning and and pushing for more density um, in smart places um, is just the general efficiency aspect, uh, which is that. When you build large lot zoning, you're pushing people further and further outward, which means that you're building more roads, you're creating more infrastructure that's very costly to local and state governments. And at the same time, it's destroying farmland and forest. One of the shows I was on uh, last year, actually on where we live, was about agricultural zoning and how our zoning is really hurting uh, our farmers and our ability to be to produce food and be self-sufficient. All of these issues are tied together. So I really applaud uh, the, the listener who made those connections because they're there. They're really important. And I think nationally, we will see more environmental groups involved in zoning reform as more data is produced that shows the links between zoning, driving, greenhouse gas emissions, wasteful infrastructure, and degradation of our forest, farmlands, wetlands, and other environmentally sensitive areas. So join join the housing movement. The housing movement is an environmental movement. Thank you, Sarah, for that. Uh, again, with us, Robert Ellickson, uh, who's written the new book, America's Frozen Neighborhoods, The Abuse of Zoning. We just have about five minutes left, uh, Bob. And, and you know, you also touch in your book that this is more than just dealing with this from a federal standpoint. Uh, the quote here from you, members of the mass media tend to regard anything that happens at, a, at City Hall as unworthy of attention. So again, drilling down to local zoning ordinances and the greater impact, one of the uh, suggestions in your book, state legislatures also are the key to zoning reform. Can you explain? Uh, yes, I, I firmly believe this, uh, that uh, the state uh, state is the right level, uh, not the federal government, uh, to uh, correct uh, the abuse of zoning. Uh, uh, local governments have misbehaved. They have uh, used their uh, uh, home rule powers and so forth to damage regional housing consumers. Uh, but this, uh, there's no reason to federalize these uh, issues. Uh, in my view, uh, this, the states are the ideal uh, correctors of, of, of these kinds of policies. Uh, the uh, Connecticut legislature, for example, uh, has ample power to uh, constrain uh, uh, local zoning practices uh, by, for example, uh, limiting the number of the large lot exclusionary, various exclusionary practices that uh, people, uh, 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 local governments otherwise would undertake. So um, 
uh, so I, I think the states uh, are the key. You also suggest, uh, you know, that states could establish an agency dedicated to the goal of reducing local barriers to the construction of least cost housing. Have you seen yes. uh, other models in other states where, you know, that proves true that that um, type of uh, of solution uh, is working for particular communities? Uh, uh, this is there are very few communities, uh, states that uh, actually ha- have uh, such programs. Um, but I do in my book, I do uh, advocate uh, f- federal grants and aid uh, to uh, f- federal agencies, uh, f- federal grants and aid to state agencies that would uh, take on that, that particular task. And you also promised to share all of the the data you've compiled uh, with other researchers. And so when we think about the momentum here, Bob, are you optimistic? Um, Moderately uh, optimistic, I would say, uh, with Sarah and others uh, who've done marvelous work and so forth. There is a bit of momentum for zoning reform. Uh, but I'm not uh, in, in incredibly op- optimistic about it. I think the the uh, status quo bias that pervades uh, zoning politics is quite profound, and uh, I'm not sure that uh, that uh, reform reformers will overcome it. Again, you've been hearing Robert Ellickson, the Walter E. Meyer Professor Emeritus of Property and Urban Law at Yale Law School, author of this new book, America's Frozen Neighborhoods: The Abuse of Zoning. Thank you so much, Bob, for your time on the show. Okay. And also Sarah Bronin, a professor of Cornell University, director of the Legal Constructs Lab, where she's overseen the creation of a national zoning atlas. Uh, Definitely worth the time to, to revisit Sarah in the future. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you so much. And I'll just say I'm very optimistic. So keep up the fight out there. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Special thanks to Gina Matruda and Dylan Reyes. We'll be back tomorrow with a Mac found recipient, a Mac Arthur genius grant, rather, Dr. Emily Wei Wong. We'll be hearing from her from the Yale School of Medicine. We hope you join us for that conversation.